Welcome to the Canary and Coal Mine Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Hoffman. Remember, if you like the podcast, to subscribe, share it with your friends, tell them all about how wonderful it is, but make sure that we get more listeners and more people's attention because we are your early warning system for all the insanity from the extremists that is coming and making its way towards your city. Let's start out with something fun today. I'm a boat guy, so let's discuss boats a little bit here. There was a boat named the Can of Worms. A can of worms it sure turned out to be. At the end of its lifespan, this once proud 44-foot fishing cruiser was obtained by people identifying themselves as Seattle's homeless. That's in quotes. We'll come back to that later. In October of 2019, the sailors in Seattle loaded their possessions onto the boat joined some individuals in a similar boat called the Blue Dolphin and sailed off into the sunset. It wasn't long until the boat grounded itself on the shore of Lake Washington, slicing a hole in its hull. The other boat in the flotilla, the Blue Dolphin, tried to pull the can of worms off the beach and in the process blew out its already damaged transmission. These boats were completely falling apart in bad shape to begin with, so towing is probably not the best thing to be doing with them. Now stranded, the crew acquired a generator and placed it on shore. They ran regular home extension cords from the generator through the water to the can of worms. Sailors on the Blue Dolphin found a sheet, wrote on it, We need gas, please, and draped it over the side of the boat. Over the course of the next few weeks, the boats would be joined by other boats, creating a moored homeless fleet. While marooned at Adams Beach, the residents began dumping waste, sewage, garbage, and more overboard while the vessel leaked fluids like oil into Lake Washington. Neighborhood residents and tenants of a nearby private mortgage began noticing the occupants of the boats in the yards of their homes and on the docks of the mortgage at night. Residents of the nearby Seward Park and Lakewood neighborhoods began to grow nervous that the beach would end up being like the streets in other parts of Seattle that host derelict vehicles, namely the RVs you've heard so much about from me before, inhabited by criminals and drug users. The neighbors contacted the police, but there was little they could do. They contacted local elected officials who claimed to care about the environment, but their concerns went unanswered. When the situation remained unchanged three weeks later, they contacted the media. Now, something you need to know about this, Lake Washington, which is where this was happening, is federal. The shore is municipal, which means it's city run. Keep that in the back of your mind for a minute as we go forward through this. Even after the story aired and was shared by local neighborhood groups, it wasn't until late November that the boats were sighted by Seattle police with a 72-hour impound warning. It was actually probably the Harbor Patrol, but it looked the same as all the stickers you see on these vehicles, like the RVs. The Blue Dolphin disappeared, leaving its fellow sailors on the can of worms behind. In that time, an election had gone by, and a new city council member, Tammy Morales, had been elected. Morales would tell media outlets and forum attendees that her 11-year-old son was worried that he would not live until 25 because of the climate crisis. And yet this boat remained on the beach two blocks from her home and visible outside of her windows, leaking oil and polluting the lake. A little bit of hypocrisy there. In December, 
Mounting pressure by residents and the media caused the boat to be added to Washington's inventory of vessels of concern. Notice went out that the Seattle Harbor Patrol would take custody of the vessel on 12-20-2019. So that probably means it was the Harbor Patrol, not the Seattle Police Department, technically, even though they're similar. Who is dealing with all this? Yet, the boat remained through January. Neighbors and neighborhood groups like Safe Seattle began making memes of Gilligan's Island to showcase the failure and hypocrisy of local government. Towards the end of February, a sticker appeared on the side of the boat, as I mentioned before, just like the ones we see on the dilapidated RVs that had become the symbol of Seattle's failure to address the homeless crisis and the crime on the streets. Signs announcing the closure of the beach it was marooned on for two days, it said it would be closed for two days, were also posted. So no access to the parking lot that's over there either. On February 24th, two giant truck wreckers and an excavator were used to hoist a can of worms ashore for its final voyage aboard a flatbed truck to a scrapyard in Yakima, two and a half hours away from Seattle, for a cost to the taxpayers of approximately $42,000. A friend of mine came up to me in synagogue this week and told me that the Department of Ecology was actually contacted about this thing. I know. I called them one time myself. This is near my house. And that they told me that the Parks Department had arranged this whole thing, which is weird because it really falls under the purview of the federal government because it's in Lake Washington. Interesting because calls to the governor's office also went unanswered. Jay Inslee, our governor who ran for president under being the climate change activist and didn't get very far at all. He had nothing to do with this, had nothing to say about this. And also it's a little weird because this project went out to the lowest bidder. The lowest bidder bid $42,000. Why you're hauling this thing two and a half hours away to Yakima to break it apart? Why you couldn't, I don't know, take all the parts out of it that are dangerous and sink it to be a reef? Why you couldn't do this for cheaper? You give me a few thousand dollars, I'll get this done for way cheaper. I'm happy to make some money. This is all kind of crazy, but this is the lowest bidder at $42,000. Who's bidding these government projects? <sighs> Seattle and Washington state politicians proclaim that they want a Green New Deal. We already discussed Jay Inslee, governor of Washington state, ran for president with the sole narrative of combating cli uh, climate change. Yet despite all the virtue signaling, increasing taxes, and crippling regulation, Washington's greenhouse gases increased under Jay Inslee's leadership. In an op-ed to the Seattle Times, business leaders Aaron Goodman and Mike Stewart lamented the damage being caused to the environment by the homeless RVs on the streets of Seattle. I'm going to read from the article and quote it to you. Many of these RV owners fail to follow proper waste disposal protocols, instead discharging their accumulated sewer waste, including black water, directly into city storm drains. The result is that untreated sewage is being released directly into our local waterways. Using Environmental Protection Agency wastewater pump-out and treatment statistics, it's estimated that Seattle RV campers likely discharge more than 1 million gallons of untreated sewage annually into our waterways, including the Duwamish Waterway and Salmon Bay. For comparison, a July spill of 3 million gallons from the West Point Treatment Plant, that's in Seattle, not New York, closed multi multiple King and Kitsap County beaches and could lead to enforcement actions. 
The Soto Business Improvement Area and the Ballard Alliance commissioned Anchor QEA, a Seattle-based environmental science and engineering firm, to evaluate existing water quality data and collect a storm drain water sample from a heavily populated RV parking area in Soto. The sample from the storm drain in the midst of the RVs registered 300 times greater than the state water quality standard for fecal coliform bacteria. Sadly, this sampling result is consistent with recent trends in deteriorating water quality in the area. For example, historic water quality monitoring data showed that a decades-long improvement in the Duwamish River until 2015 when fecal coliform bacteria measurements began to spike upward sidebar so that means that the duwamish river which has been polluted forever that they were finally cleaning up was on the rise and clean up until 2015 when fecal coliform bacteria measurements began to spike upwards this coincides 2015 sound familiar just a few years ago with the movement of hundreds of rvs into soto Anybody who lives in Seattle, King County, will tell you this is nothing new. They knew about this forever because anytime an RV pulls into their neighborhood, there's always garbage around, there's always needles around, there's always waste being pumped out, whether it's being pumped into backyards, whether it's being pumped into front yards, cemeteries, schoolyards, parks, you name it. The environment does not matter to these people at all. In lawsuits against Purdue Pharma, this is a big thing. This was in the news a while ago because Seattle did not accept the settlement that all these other cities accepted when it came to these lawsuits against Purdue Pharma. Seattle and King County, even though they claim that the housing crisis is, the homeless crisis rather, is because of housing affordability issues, they attribute in their own lawsuits the homeless crisis in Seattle to over 80% of the residents on the streets having a drug and opioid addiction. Drug and opioid addiction doesn't sound like a housing affordability issue to me. In fact, the navigation team, the one that cleans up all the stuff on the streets and offers people shelter and is made up of people in waste management, is made up of police officers, made up of social workers, their numbers reflect the exact same thing. Here's something fun. Recently, levels of methamphetamines have been on the rise in local waterways. No, it's not a drug problem at all. In local waterways like the Puget Sound and Lake Washington, as well as two vehicle-related contaminants that are found in tires and other vehicle sources, and two chemicals found in plastics. To be fair, we know there's a whole bunch of lime bikes at the bottom of Lake Washington. So maybe it's coming from those tires and not all the, I don't know, RV parts and car parts that are littering Seattle. This is not surprising, given the thousands of plastic needles that are given out by Seattle-sponsored needle exchanges and are found scattered all over Seattle sidewalks and parks. Oi. Washington State has decided to no longer provide free pump-outs through the Clean Vessel Act. The Clean Vessel Act, they would come to your boat and they would pump you out. They would pump out your waste, anything like that to keep it from going into Lake Washington because what a lot of people do, they don't want to go to a pumping station. They just drive to the middle of the lake, flip a switch and dump it out there. The state no longer feels it's a good use of federal grant money. The CVA provides funds for the construction, renovation, operation, and maintenance of pump-out stations and waste reception facilities for recreational boaters and also for educational programs that inform boaters of the importance of proper disposal for their sewage. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who cares about these rich people and their toys? Before you can say, who cares about these rich people and their toys? They can pump out their own poop or pay for it themselves. 
The greater Seattle area has a large number of houseboats. Many people live on them because it is cheaper than a regular house. Sometimes these boats are not movable. They rely on services like these when they do not have shore services. Additionally, the money from the grant program comes from the Sport Fish Restoration and Boating Trust Fund, which gets its money from excise taxes on fishing equipment, motorboat, and small engine fuels and import duties. So those rich people with their toys have already paid for it. For five months, the boat served as a symbol of government failure and empty promises of combating climate change and politicians enabling the behavior which causes people to remain on the streets. It was local boat owners, regularly criticized as the 1%, who not only urged agencies to take action to protect the waterways, but also footed the bill from their boat taxes which fund the derelict vessel program. Meanwhile, virtue signaling politicians like Inslee and Morales warn us of the coming catastrophe of climate change and yet fail to take action when the problem is literally in their own neighborhoods. Something else my friend from the Department of Ecology told me. told me that's quite common that boat owners who can no longer afford the boat or the boat's fallen into disrepair. It is cheaper to just sell it to somebody who needs it like these homeless people than re- issue your licenses, pay for your licenses to be renewed, any of that kind of stuff. So what's happening is these boats are ending up all over Lake Washington and the Puget Sound. This derelict vessel list is growing larger and larger and larger by the day because once they run out of gas money or anything else, they just leave the boat. It's sitting there. So now you don't just have the problem with these abandoned vehicles on city streets. You have it in the waterways as well. A can of worms indeed. Remember, if you like the podcast, to subscribe, share, tell your friends. We will be back with a little bit more after this word from our sponsor. If you would like to sponsor the Canary in the Coal Mine podcast, please contact us through our Facebook page or go to anchor.fm and we'll be more than happy to arrange your sponsorship opportunity. These magical lips, this amazing voice would be more than happy to promote your product and services on the podcast. We'll be back after a short word from our sponsor. Welcome back to the Canary and Coal Mine Podcast. Remember, if you like the podcast, to subscribe, share it with your friends, download it. We have the video version, we have the audio version, we got a whole bunch of great stuff. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, all these amazing places. Remember, my name is Ari Hoffman. You can find me on Twitter at the Hoff Father and on Facebook at Ari Hoffman for Seattle. So, this is a question I get asked all the time. Do you think that Bernie Sanders is an anti-Semite? If I had a dollar for every time I got asked that question, as a token Jewish guy in Seattle's political arena, I get asked that often by people across the political spectrum. Just yesterday, I was at Home Depot with my son, and there was a gentleman behind me online, and he saw my yarmulke up here. Was I wearing this one? This is my Mets one. See, it says Mets in Hebrew. This is my Mets one here. I was wearing it, and he said, excuse me, do you mind if I ask you a question? <laughs> I said, sure, what's up? You normally get the most interesting questions. You know it has something to do with Judaism when you wear this thing on your head. And he says, can you tell me, I've heard a lot about Bernie Sanders and not liking Jews, being Jewish, and Michael Bloomberg. Can you clear that up for me? 
I'll come back to that at the end of this for a second and what my response to him was. My son giggled. We'll come back to that. A Jew can be anything a non-Jew can be. A Jew can be a bigot, a racist, even a self-hating Jew. There isn't a minority pass on hatred just because you are a minority. That is the fundamental flaw with intersectionality. What is intersectionality for those of you who don't woke speak, speak woke, understand this word salad you get from the left all the time? Intersectionality is defined as the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. What the hell does that mean? To translate that nonsensical word salad for you, the more minority or oppressed people's boxes you can check, the more value you have to the left, aka society as they deem it. However, being a member of a protected class does not mean you don't attack other ethnic groups. Sanders is a 78-year-old white guy, what the left claims to want to get rid of in favor of more ethnic representations. If Sanders can check the Jewish box, he not only gets to claim minority status, but can also deflect the frequent accusations of anti-Semitism against his campaign. For those of you who don't know, often accusations of anti-Semitism are leveled against the Sanders campaign, especially because of who he associates with. He has people as surrogates, but we'll come back to that in a moment. A joke that is making the rounds. This is one of my favorites. What is the difference between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump? Answer. Donald Trump has Jewish grandkids. Yes, that's correct. Donald Trump's daughter converted to Judaism, and that means they now have Jewish children. Also, I believe his other kids, not just Ivanka, but I believe his other kids also married Jews. In And Bernie Sanders' kids did not. Whole different conversation there. In fact, I don't think Bernie Sanders even married somebody who was Jewish in his second marriage, which is his current marriage. In 2016, Sanders told the Washington Post, I am not actively involved with organized religion. He went to the Soviet Union and praised its government for his honeymoon while Jews were being persecuted behind the Iron Curtain and desperate to escape. I remember, I think I may have mentioned this before, as a kid, they used to have a special art project for us for the holiday of Passover. We would take records out of their albums. Yes, I'm that old. I remember what a record is. And we would shove matzah into the record album to smuggle it to Jews who were not allowed to celebrate Passover behind the Iron Curtain. This is the kind of stuff that was going on, aside from being shipped off to gulags in Siberia. Oi. Yet now Sanders and his anti-Semitic campaign staff and surrogates like Rashid Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, who the Senate actually was about to condemn, but then they wouldn't let them because of, sorry, the House was about to condemn, but then they wouldn't let them because, you know, it's awful if we call her out for her anti-Semitism, so we'll condemn all kinds of hatred and stuff. Um... Now that his, sur his surrogates and campaign staff are in the spotlight, Sanders has started to fall back on his heritage. Never mentioned it before, but now all of a sudden he's talking all about it. Sanders embraces socialism and communism. Both have always ended badly for the Jews and everyone else for that matter. This week, Sanders posted that he would not attend the annual American-Israel Political Action Committee APAC conference, which has, until the Democrat Party has lurched so far to the left, enjoyed bipartisan support. All these people accuse it, like uh, Ilhan Omar say, it's all about the Benjamins and all this money that APAC gives. That's not what APAC does. First of all, APAC is not even a PAC. When I ran for office, they are not allowed to endorse you. 
What the bulk of APAC's money goes towards is taking people to Israel so they can see it for themselves. I believe in the ranking of PACs. APAC out of 120 is 146. They're not talking about the mega Jew dollars that go with that anti-Semitic trope all the time. Oh, this just this just frustrates me when you talk about this kind of stuff. Sanders tweeted his reason for not going to APAC is APAC is for leaders who express bigotry and oppose basic Palestinian rights. Sanders seems to be out of touch with the majority of American Jews who year after year have an over 70% favorable opinion of Israel and support of Israel. Now, mind you, Israel is the only place in the Middle East where there are LGBTQ rights for people living there for palestinians that doesn't exist in any other country in the middle east women can't drive in most of the countries in the middle east in fact if i was to walk into gaza well we'll get back to that in a second what happens when a jew goes to gaza we'll come back to that in a minute let's continue here for a minute even in the arab world israeli arabs would prefer to be Israeli citizens than be citizens of a Palestinian state. What do I mean by that? When Trump announced the deal of the century, a lot of Palestinians were upset because in the deal, it said that Palestinians might have to become, I'm sorry, not Palestinians, Israeli Arabs or Arabs living in Israel might have to become citizens of a Palestinian state. They don't want to be, they want to be Israeli citizens. Israeli Arabs get to be Knesset members, Supreme Court members, have voting rights, can serve in the army if they want to. Sanders just doesn't understand it, and neither do his surrogates. Sanders is part of a tiny segment of cultural Jews that embraces radical ideology that has been historically dangerous to the Jewish people. Socialism and communism throughout history have always attracted anti-Semites, which is likely why so many of them have aligned with the Sanders campaign. So let's stop making it about whether or not Bernie Sanders is Jewish. We know he is Jewish. He has a circumcision just like I do, but that's pretty much where it ends because he doesn't even identify as a Jew until recently to deflect from all this. Socialism, communism, that is what attracts the anti-Semitism. As a socialist, Sanders and his surrogates and allies opposition to Israel is hypocritical given that Israel was founded as a socialist country. According to the American Enterprise Institute scholar Joseph Light, most early Israeli settlers worked either on collective farms called kibbutzim or in state-guaranteed jobs. Kibbutzim were small farming communities in which people did chores in exchange for food and money to live on and pay their bills. I had relatives who lived on kibbutzim. This is very common. There was no private property. People ate in common and children under 18 lived together and not with their parents. Sounds like the socialist communist dream. Any money earned on the outside was given to the kibbutz. Interestingly, Sanders, who is known to have lived and worked on a kibbutz in the 1960s, avoids naming the kibbutz he worked on and telling stories from that period of his life because the kibbutz he worked on was one that sympathized with the Soviets that was sponsored by the Soviets and was an attempt to get Soviet influence into Israel, into this American ally. Perhaps talking about it, reminds him that is remind sanders that israel's economy has grown exponentially from the transition to a free market economy since their socialist economy collapsed in 1983 and is a prime example of the failures of socialism maybe that's why they don't like israel last week while my wife and i were visiting israel for a wedding now mind you for all the people who don't like me very much and think i'm an evil zionist occupier why was i there a former student of mine, you'll love this one, was actually a cheerleader from Mercer Island High School. Yep. 
And she used to go on programs that would run for kids to go to Israel. And she signed up for the Israeli Defense Forces. Now, usually girls don't serve in combat. They have the choice to opt out. She decided to go to Gaza as a soldier for search and rescue. She then went to counterterrorism school and is now on track to be an ambassador for Israel in their ambassador training program. Met a nice Jewish Israeli boy who was serving in the Israeli army too, and they got married. This was an Israeli fabulous wedding. If you've ever seen the movie, Don't Mess With the Zohan, it's all true. It's all awesome. It's, it was the best kind of wedding. We had a great time. So this evil Zionist occupier went to see a couple other evil Zionist occupiers who served in the IDF get married. Actually, one of my greatest regrets is that I never served. So last week, my wife and I went there for this wedding and a friend said, hey, I heard you're in town. How would you like to join us at a campaign rally for <laughs> Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu? Now, I've been a fan of Bibi my whole life, so this sounded like a lot of fun. There were tons of speakers from Israel's Likud party. That's the party they're part of. That's their right wing, quote unquote, more free market party, as well as Governor Mike Huckabee all of which praise President Trump as the most pro-Israel president in history. Some of the speakers discussed the success and miraculous growth of the Israeli economy because of the switch from socialism to the free market. Netanyahu himself echoed many of these thoughts and ideas. Here's something interesting. He arrived two hours late because he was dealing with dozens of rockets being launched into southern Israel from Gaza. That is the life of an Israeli. So they had to stall for two and a half hours. All these speakers came up from the Likud party because the prime minister was busy dealing with rocket attack. Imagine what would happen if one rocket, one rocket came over the border from Mexico and landed in Texas. How long would it be until we wiped Mexico off the map? Anybody got a calculation of minutes, seconds? But this is what Israel deals with all the time. Upon returning from Israel, I was informed of yet another in a long line of anti-Israel documentaries being screened in Seattle. The screenings are being organized by Seattle socialists who support Sanders. How do I know this? Because these are the same people who used to attack me during the campaign. When I reached out to the theater, here's how I found this out, I asked them for comment. I was quickly disconnected from the manager. I assumed it was intentional. Give everybody benefit of the doubt. I didn't think he hung up on me. I called back and was connected to one of the organizers who answered the phone knowing it would be me. He told me that he runs a podcast where I'm a frequent topic of conversation. I mentioned it was entertaining to know how much red space I take up in their heads. <laughs> I don't think he appreciated that very much. He laughed and mocked me all through my questions. And when I pushed back on his outrageous claims of Israel being an apartheid state, as I mentioned before, Arab citizens in Israel can vote, are members of the Knesset, Supreme Court justices, and can serve in the army. So Israel really sucks at this whole apartheid thing. The responses to all my questions were, oh, come on, you know the truth, and constant laughter. I continued to push back on his claims of Gaza being an open-air prison by demonstrating that many Palestinians in Israel work at Israeli companies. Take SodaStream, for example. SodaStream was populated and employed tons of Palestinians and Israelis working together to create this product. What happened? The Boycott Divest Sanction Movement got upset that it was in the territories, and eventually SodaStream succumbed to pressure and had to move the factory. So the only people they ended up hurting was the Palestinians who were laid off because of all this. This is just goes on and on and on. This conversation, the mocking continued. As usual, those who align with socialism and embrace anti-Israel and anti-Semitic tropes. This just continues. The defining moment of the conversation was when I asked this person if he had ever been to Israel. To which he replied, no, but have you ever been to Gaza? 
I answered, no, because as a Jew, I would be executed or imprisoned for going there because Jews are not allowed in Gaza. One thing that does not get discussed a lot, they talk about the Palestinian refugee crisis, that are all these Palestinians that were dislocated because of the war in 1948. What actually happened was the Arab countries that were invading Israel in 1948 said, you guys leave, you can have the land when we're done wiping out the Jews. The problem is Israel won and this threw a big wrench into their plans. Something else that happened, you can still live there as an Arab, as a Palestinian, you just have to apply for citizenship. Something else, they don't talk about the 850,000 Jews that were dislocated from all the Arab countries that attacked Israel. They were all kicked out and Israel had to resettle all of them. So a nation of recent immigrants, of Holocaust survivors, had to figure out how to pay for all these people, 850,000 people in their first year of existence, what to do with all of them. Sanders and his socialist supporters failed to discuss the rocket attacks on Israeli civilians from Hamas-controlled Gaza and the corruption of the elected officials of the Palestinian Authority, who received billions of dollars in aid from around the world, and yet those funds are never used to address the deplorable living conditions of Palestinians living under their rule. Instead, they use the money for palaces. Mahmoud Abbas built himself this giant palace. Mahmoud Abbas, who's head of the Palestinian Authority, who is in the 16th year, I believe, of his four-year term. That's who we're talking about here. They build terror tunnels and they build rocket launchers and send them after Israel. That money that could be going towards schools to turning Gaza into like another Singapore by the beach. They could have had that. Instead, they're using the money for terror. Bernie Sanders is as Jewish as I am, but he has turned against our shared heritage and history. Sanders allies with people who wish our co-religions harm in order to win elections. If Sanders does end up becoming the Democrat nominee, many Jews will likely end up supporting President Trump or staying home. Though at 2% of the population, we won't have an effect on the election. We will just be the canaries in a coal mine sounding the alarm for the rest of the country. So what did I tell this guy behind me online at Home Depot when he asked about Bernie Sanders and the anti-Semitism, what I was going to do? I said, Bernie Sanders is just as Jewish as I am, but it ends with the circumcision. That's it. That's about all we have in common. So those of you who are thinking about voting for this individual with the primaries going on, it seems like he's going to run away with the Democratic nomination. Don't say I didn't warn you. We'll be back after a few more words from our sponsor with our Hidden Gems category, where I tell you about all the awesome things that you may not have found out about on your own that may not even have anything to do with politics. So come on back. We'll enjoy it. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe and to share the podcast. We'll be back in just a few seconds. For our hidden gems category this week, as I mentioned before, my wife and I went to Israel, but we stopped in London on the way. There is a new musical that just opened that is making its way around the world after its run in London, after they work all the kinks out and stuff. You may have heard of it. It's called The Prince of Egypt. It's the story of the Exodus from Egypt. It's based on the DreamWorks movie that came out in the 1990s. Spoiler alert, the Jews go free. I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought, yes, it has its problems. It's not completely true. The text, okay, I don't have a problem with that. The movie was entertaining. It was fun. I didn't like that they cut out the scene of the sorcerers that work for Pharaoh, for Paro, where you're playing with the big boys now. They nuked that whole thing, and I love that song. Plus, it's not the same one. Steve Martin and Martin Short aren't there to do it. But something that really bothered me was they changed the ending. How do you change the ending of a biblical story that's been around for thousands of years? They made you feel bad for Pharaoh and the Egyptians at the end. That's different from even the movie. 
I thought that was really weird. The singing was amazing. The musical numbers were amazing. <coughs> Excuse me. They also had these dancers, which just kept distracting me from everything. But whatever. It was more like they just were not relevant in certain scenes. They made the burning bush cool that they tried to make it out of dancing people, but it just kind of looked weird to me. So it was more distracting than anything else. Overall, love the musical. The way they split the sea and drowned the Egyptians was very cool. But this whole thing about Paro, Pharaoh, just being misunderstood didn't really register with me. Maybe they're going off of the commentaries who say in the story of Jonah, down the road in the Bible, for those of you who are Bible um, people who understand the text, in the story of Jonah, Jonah eventually, you know, does end up going to Nineveh as commanded by God after they throw him off the ship, he's swallowed by the whale, everything. He does end up going to Nineveh and he says to them, repent, and they actually repent, which is weird because normally when somebody shows up and says repent in the Bible, they don't do it. The commentaries say, why were they so quick to repent? Because their ruler was Pharaoh, that he survived the story of Egypt and was now the ruler of this town called Nineveh, which is where Jonah went. And he said, I'm not messing with that God again. We will repent. We'll get it done right now. So maybe that's where they're taking it from. Overall, I do recommend it when it comes to America. Go see it. It'll be awesome. It'll be fantastic. If it comes to your country, your state, your city, go check it out. You'll love it. You'll remember all the songs. It's great. A few other things had a ton of time to watch movies on the plane. I spoke about Ford versus Ferrari a few weeks ago. I downloaded the Adam Carolla documentary that was done on Netflix about the um, about the whole idea of Shelby, of Carol Shelby, and how he created his company and what he did as a racer. It was really, really awesome. If you like cars, if you like that part of history, check it out. It's on Netflix right now. I also downloaded for my trip this movie with Ryan Reynolds, Six Underground, this Michael Bay, Bayham action extravaganza. Did I love it? No. Would I watch it again? No. Was it fun to kill some time? Yes. Is it fine for just binging Netflix at home? Yes. It's a ridiculous over-the-top action movie. You will enjoy it if you like ridiculous, over-the-top action movies. It's nothing special. It doesn't stand out in any way. Ryan Reynolds is the same character he always is, wisecracking and fun. I love that about him. You get what you sign up for with this movie. So, Anthony Shelby movie. I think it's called Shelby America on Netflix. Check that out as a documentary. And check out Under Six Underground, which is also on Netflix. Both have a recommendation. They are exactly what you expect them to be. And I think you will enjoy them. We have a whole lot more coming up. We have a whole backlog from my trip of things to catch up on. So next week, we're actually going to be talking about injection sites. Philadelphia almost had them. Stopped it this week. I went up to check them out in Vancouver. We're going to have a whole discussion about that. In the meantime, go to my YouTube page, Ari Hoffman. It's the one with the little Canary logo. And watch a movie called Injected. It's 15 minutes long. It'll tell you everything you need to know about injection sites. So you are prepared for next week's episode. Remember to subscribe and to share the podcast. Remember that if you would like to sponsor the podcast, please go to anchor.fm and we are more than happy to take your money. I am more than happy to sell your product. I'm more than happy to use your product within reason. And remember, don't say I didn't warn you. We'll talk to you next week.